This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Leaving aside the macro picture of the rise of populism, for people to be healthier and for the health gradient, which reflects inequalities in health, to be flatter rather than steeper, it really helps if there are multiple ways to secure social status. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. When I went to India on a research trip in December 2014, the writers, intellectuals and political scientists I met there were in the middle of a big debate about just how bad the government of Narendra Modi would turn out to be. Nearly all of them disliked him for his attacks on the country's secularist constitution, for his Hindu nationalism, but while some of them thought that they might end up in prison, that dissidents might be quashed very quickly, most thought that the institutions of Indian democracy would be able to fend themselves against Modi. Now, for much of the first term of Modi's rule, the guarded optimists were proven right. For all kinds of terrible things were going on in the country, it did not look as though the worst predictions were coming true. Well, that makes it all the more remarkable that since Modi's re-election in May of this year, things have rapidly gotten worse. A series of complicated citizenship law proposals, which together have the impact of making the status of Muslims in the country very insecure, are taking a big step towards turning India into a Hindu nation. And when a big wave of protests against these changes started to erupt in cities and campuses around this big country, the police quashed it with remarkable brutality. In some parts of India, the government has switched off the internet entirely. Now, one of the reasons why I've been following this with particular attention is that it fits a wider pattern for what populists do in their second term. Whether you look at Viktor Orban in Hungary, whether you look at Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, they were worse in their second term. Whether you look at India today or at what the populist government of Poland is doing, emboldened by its recent re-election, things have gotten worse. And so as we're entering this year of 2020, I take an American lesson from that, which is that it is tempting to judge what Donald Trump would do in the next four years by what he has done in the last three or four years. It is tempting to think that his second term in office would be terrible, but imaginably terrible. Well, the example of other populist governments around the world 
show why we shouldn't be complacent. The last four years are not necessarily an accurate guide to the damage that Trump would do in the next four years. Now I want to turn from the future of democracy to its causes. This is a topic I know we've discussed quite a few times on this podcast, but we now have one of the most interesting contributors to the debate on this show. Peter Hall is the Krupp Foundation and Professor of European Studies at Harvard University. He was one of my teachers when I was in graduate school, and he has thought very deeply among other things, about the way in which social status helps to explain which voters are tempted by populism and which are able to resist it. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Oh, well, great pleasure to be here. I feel like I've been thinking through your work and with your work for a long time. I was a graduate student at Harvard and took some of your classes and you were very helpful in helping me think about my dissertation. And now we're both trying to figure out populism. A lot of your recent work has been on populism. You know, one of the really stale aspects of that still very young debate is this horse race between, is this about the economy or is this about racism, demography, identity? How do you avoid that horse race? What's the more helpful way of thinking about the causes of populism that avoids this? Well, I think you're right. It's logical that arguments should start with that debate because this is to some degree, I think, a revolt against globalization. And I think we're talking about a populism, both right and left, but especially right. And I think we're probably talking about it around the world. Certainly, I look at it really only in Western democracies and Eastern Europe. But I think that there is a sense in which this is a revolt against globalization and the kinds of economic difficulties that's posed for many people. But it's also obviously animated to some degree by anti-immigrant sentiment, which you can see is another dimension of globalization, I suppose. And, you know, this split between what we might call ordinary people who think about the world in a variety of ways and cultural elites who increasingly include economic and political elites who sometimes think about the world in a different way, you know, with uh, what Engelhardt called post-materialist values I would think of as cosmopolitan outlooks. So economics clearly goes into the mix, I think, as does a set of cultural developments, and the relevant cultural development here is the growing popularity in educated circles of cosmopolitan values, if you like. So that's interesting. You're putting that a little bit differently from how a lot of people in the debate would. So a lot of people in the debate would say that the more cultural set of causes is basically, to put it relatively simply, that countries used to have this deep racial and ethnic hierarchy, that they had a lot of racism in them. But that has started to be challenged in some kind of way. And this is simply the fight between those who want to preserve the old order and those who stand for equality and justice and so on. But where you framed it is much more complex. But there's a genuine clash of values where each side, for we might both sympathize with one side more than the other, each side has some legitimate claims to make about what values they prioritize, what kind of vision they have for a collective life. Well, yes, these are normative questions, not surprising coming from a political philosopher like yourself. But my view of it is, first instance, least non-normative. We have to take everyone's views seriously, whether we agree with them or not. And those of us who are trying to understand this phenomenon have to think about the ways in which ordinary people 
and you know, even to use the term ordinary people is a little bit of a misnomer and maybe not entirely appropriate, where many people hold to what I would call traditional values. And you know, I deliberately call them traditional values rather than, let's say, authoritarian values, as many people do, because in thinking about the problem, I don't want to prejudge the answer in a sense. You know, I don't want to argue that the world is moving forward, the cosmopolitans are bound to win, everything else is some residue of a older, less progressive society, you know, the, the same way that Marx thought the peasants were a sack of potatoes. Mm. Well, I think we have to get beyond that. I think that there are genuine conflicts of value here, and we have to be attentive to both sides of that debate. And we have to be particularly careful not to, in my view at least, not to express contempt for one side or the other. In your own work, you pointed out that this is part of the problem. But political scientists call rising effective polarization, uh, the degree to which each side views the other as entirely unreasonable, and the sense of uh, dislike on both sides of these issues uh, rising, that's as much as part of the problem, it seems to me, as uh, the rest of it. Yeah, it seems to me that often people still underestimate the danger that populists can pose to our basic values while simultaneously being overly ready to vilify anybody who's voted for a populist. I think that's exactly right, yeah. But you're also right, the first part of what you said, in my view, is also right. We should not ignore the dangers here. I'm not saying, oh, it's just one or the other, it doesn't matter how this comes out. No, that's not the case. I, I mean, I think populism, especially in its right-wing form, poses serious challenges to democracy, as you indeed have shown in your work. So a lot of the times in social science at the moment, I think there's a danger that you're trying to measure things out there in the world, and the metrics that people construct about this can be very obscure. Even for a careful reader of a study, it can be a little bit obscure, and certainly for the journalists who are writing about it, and certainly for the people who then write the headlines for the newspaper articles that the journalists have written about it. And so this is sort of further and further degrees of separation from the underlying work. One of the studies that has been tremendously influential in the last couple of years in horse racing these two causes and saying it's all about race, it's nothing about the economy, when you look a little bit more closely, it turns out to be more complicated. First of all, they count fear about trade with China as unambiguously about race rather than the economy, which is a strange choice. And secondly, they then use questions like what do you think about affirmative action as their measure for racial resentment. Now, first, that hasn't changed much in the Republican Party. People who voted for George W. Bush or Mitt Romney were against affirmative action in similar numbers to people who voted for Donald Trump. And second, when that then becomes, in the words of the headline writers, proof that Trump voters are racist, I think you're making this story a little bit simpler than it really is. Of course, as social scientists, we all simplify the world. The world is a complex place. But to go back to your initial point, you know, I really think that trying to decide is support for right populism an economic phenomenon or is it a cultural phenomenon is to ask exactly the wrong question. It's the kind of question that social scientists do tend to ask because, as you know, there's been a lo long-standing separation between disciplines like economics, which see, you know, the economics rules the world, and disciplines like sociology, which have wanted to insist that no culture is what's really important. Years ago, uh, the economist James Duesenberry said, economics is all about how people make choices, and sociology is all about how they have no choices to make. Hmm. Now, you know, that was a comment for a world of Parsonian sociology, uh, which some described as over-socialized man. But there's a way in which that dichotomy still, I think, inhibits 
the effectiveness of social science. And so what I'm suggesting, along with my collaborator, Noam Gidron, is that instead we focus much more attention on thinking about how economic developments, you know, of the sort associated with globalization, interact with cultural developments, where I'm thinking in particular of changes in cultural frameworks. And that's not an easy thing to do. You know, in the work that we've done so far, we try to affect some kind of synthesis between them by looking at what social scientists would call the subjective social status of people. So what is subjective social status? Is that basically, you know, if I got 20 representative people from my country into this room, where would I place myself in a hierarchy between them? Do I feel like I'm at the top of this room? I'm more important than everybody else? Do I feel like I'm at the bottom of this room? How do you think about what social status is. Yeah, that's more or less right, except it's an expansive room. We're talking about the nation as a whole here, the national community, if you like. And of course, we all know that objective social status matters. There is such a thing, Max Weber talked about this years ago, but subjective social status is a little bit different. It's how I think about where I stand relative to others in society. So objective social status, in order to measure it, we might say, well, how much money do you make? How much money do you have in your bank account? You know, how high is your degree? And those kinds of questions. Well, those kind of questions, the classic socioeconomic status questions, education, income, wealth, they tap into objective social status. But my sense of what your social status might be like is based to some degree on those attributes. Subjective social status is about your own feelings about this, your own feelings about where you stand. And of course, that's influenced by your income and your education, what have you, uh, but not entirely by that. And we measure it in the work that we've been doing with a question that asks people, well, in all societies, some people are closer to the bottom, others are closer to the top. Where would you place yourself on this social ladder? And they're showing a social ladder that runs from 1 to 10 or 1 to 11, and they indicate where they think they stand on it. And so what you would argue is that the lower your social status is, the more what? What follows politically from feeling like you have a low social status? What we find, not surprisingly, is that the people who feel they have a lower social status, you know, below the mean, but, you know, still significant numbers of people are more likely to vote for populist parties, either of the radical right or of the radical left. I mean, the people at the very bottom of the social ladder are more likely to vote for the radical left, probably because they are interested in the social benefits that those parties offer them. The people who vote for the populist right, who are larger in number, of course, are people typically a few rungs up from the bottom of the social ladder. They're the people of something left to lose. Exactly. And subject to what Barbara Ehrenreich called a fear of falling a sense that if things don't improve, they may end up at the bottom of the social ladder themselves. And those are, of course, also people in that position, and of course people vary in their reactions, but in that position, you're especially tempted to erect, if you like, strong social boundaries between you and those lower down. In other words, try and find a group, even if you feel like your standing in society isn't all that great. In that context, it's useful to find a group whom you can say, but I'm better off than they are. And that, of course, means that you start to think of people of different races, ethnicities. And this is something to which I think social elites can often be blind. In a different context, listeners to this podcast will know that one of my worries about the political viability of something like universal basic income is precisely that from the perspective of a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, there's no real difference between the person who's unemployed and the person who works at a post office. But from the perspective of a person who works at a post office, 
the fact that they have this lower middle class job is a great source of earned identity, a great source of pride, and it defines how they have much higher social status than their cousin who never finished high school and is just laying about, right, quote unquote. That's very important to their sense of self. And if you tell both of them, don't worry, you'll all lose your jobs, we won't really have much need for you as a society, but you know, you'll both get this universal basic income. The post office worker says, well, hang on a second. What happens to my social status? Why are you proposing to equalize it when part of my identity comes from not being equal to this person? The point you make is something that Arlie Hochschild also discovered in her interviews with people in Louisiana who, you know, were feeling distrustful of the federal government, inclined to support the Tea Party. They were concerned about maintaining their position in society vis-a-vis these other people, in many cases, people on uh, social benefits, and thinking, well, those people are cutting in line. You know, they're getting something that takes them closer to the American dream, and I'm not getting anything. So the reason we think about subjective social status, this, this sense of are you central or are you marginal to society, is because economic developments and cultural developments both feed into that. So as jobs become more precarious, average incomes stagnate, people's sense of their own social standing declines. But the same thing can be true when the social and political elites, everything you read in the media, promotes a whole set of values that are really very different than your own values. Mm. And you feel, well, I'm being marginalized by this society. It's moving off in some direction that I don't recognize. So there's a way in which both economic developments and cultural developments can feed into lower levels of subjective social status. And that, I think our empirics suggest, feeds into support for populist parties. It's not the only thing that matters by any means, but it is one way to think about it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And so there's a dynamic element to this as well, right? So you show that if I just asked you, where do you place yourself in the social hierarchy today? And you place yourself, you know, in the third rung of this 10-step ladder. You're a pretty likely candidate to have voted for somebody like Donald Trump. Uh, But you also show that if... 20 or 30 years ago, you would have placed yourself on the sixth or the seventh rung, and now you place yourself in the third rung, then you are even more likely to vote for some of these populist forces. So what is it about a loss of social status that makes people particularly receptive to those populist politicians? In many ways, it's a sense of a world we have lost. You know, Justin Guest and his collaborators call this a sense of nostalgic deprivation. And I think that's something we see in this country, but we see in many other places as well. If we look at Leave and Remain voters in the Brexit referendum in Britain, we find that Leave voters are much more likely to say things were better 30 years ago than they are today. And they're also much more likely to say, and life is going to be worse for my children Mm -hmm. than it is for me. So a big piece of this, I think, is a sense that Society is moving in the wrong direction. It's moving in a direction I don't recognize. It's moving in a direction where there's no place for me. And it's being moved by forces that are way beyond my control. So I think issues of 
a society out of control is really central to the populist phenomenon. And that, of course, is one reason why some of the slogans of populist parties are so powerful. Think of the slogan of the Brexit campaign, take back control. Mm. Well, on the face of it, that meant let Britain take control over its policies from the European Union. But it really spoke to people who felt that in some ways the direction of their lives was out of control. I actually use some of that in my book, arguing that the slogan take back control is one that in some ways we should appropriate and say, yes, we will make sure that you have a feeling that you have a control over your life, that your country has control over its destiny, especially in an economic context. You know, make America great again, seen from your vantage point, basically translates to give me back the status I have lost or something like that. That's right. And it's fairly well known that people whose sense of their own status is relatively low, derive more of their self-satisfaction, if you like, from national feeling, from being proud to be an American or proud to be French, proud to be Italian. That makes sense. If you have a lot of things to be proud of in your own life, you don't need to get that status boost from thinking of a collective entity. But if you feel like your own life doesn't give you so many sources of pride, feeling like, oh, but I'm part of this great thing, has much more competing weight. Exactly. And of course, it makes people very susceptible to nationalist appeals. And I think you would agree with me that in this uh, populist wave that we're seeing around the world, what we're really seeing is the rise of nationalism again. I want to push you on a way in which I think two different ways you have of talking about this sound very similar, but perhaps pull slightly in different directions. And one of them is more optimistic and one of them is more pessimistic. So sometimes in this conversation, you've been talking about, well, people are not very optimistic about the future. They don't think their kids are going to do as well as they will. They feel that there's not going to be a real place for them culturally in their country, that all of these values are changing and they're sort of being pushed to the side. And both of those things aren't fixed sums. I could imagine a society in which most people think the future is going to be better than the past. And I could imagine a society in which very few people think the future is going to be better than the past. So from that perspective, you're giving me a prescription to think about how can I give people confidence about the economic future? How can I assure people that, yes, our country is going to become more equal? Yes, our country is going to include members of ethnic and religious minorities as full members of a nation in a way that wasn't true 50 years ago. But you know what? If you're not a part of a minority, you will still have a real sense of belonging in the society. So I think there you can ramp up or down. When we talk about status, these are more obviously rival goods. Not everybody can think that they are at the top of society. Perhaps they can, since it's subjective social status rather than objective social status. Perhaps somehow you could get everybody to think, I'm at the top of society. But that seems much more difficult. So to what extent is this a zero-sum game? And to what extent can different policies and a different cultural moment make more people feel optimistic and secure about the future or fewer people feel optimistic and secure about the future? Yeah, that's true. It's very difficult to get to the Lake Wobegon situation in which all children are above average, right? Right. 
However, it is the case that the distribution of subjective social status, a sense of self-standing in society, that distribution can vary across countries. It does vary across countries. It can vary across time. And in some cases, you know, the bulk of people can feel that they're in the middle or the top half of the distribution. In other places and times, more people feel they're in the bottom half. So it's not immutable. But I also think that this is not the only factor that matters for the extent to which populists secure votes, secure power, and the like, fortunately. I think that a society that is growing, that is attentive to both the economic and cultural positions of people in the less privileged part of the distribution, as you just said, that that can improve people's optimism, their sense that there is a future to look forward to and it's one that has a place for them. I think that can happen even if there's still going to be some distribution and some people are going to feel like they're on top of the world and other people are going to feel like, well, they're maybe in the middle or below the middle of society. This is a slight tangent, but it's something that I've thought about a lot. I think a lot of human societies can survive and a lot of hierarchies can survive. And of course, human societies necessarily need some form of hierarchy because different people adopt different schemes of evaluation and self-evaluation. Right. So I'm hopefully smart. I'm not particularly uh, athletic. I'm not the best looking guy in the world. And so it happens that in my evaluation of a world, being smart is really important. Mm-hmm. Now, it so happens that people who are really into sport and perhaps very, very good in running a marathon play a lot more value than I do in being really good at sports and therefore derive a lot of self-worth from that. And thank God for that, because it radically expands the number of people who can feel that they have high social status. You know, I am one of the best knitters in the world, and isn't that an important thing? It doesn't seem important to me, but for people within that community, it's very important. Thank God. So is there something about how societies can encourage or discourage the plurality of schemes of evaluation? I mean, you know, high schools, I think, are examples of not just steep social hierarchies, but very integrated social hierarchies. There's one scheme of evaluation and everybody sort of knows where everybody else stands because there's really only one kind of coolness metric that really matters. Already at university, I feel like the metric of evaluation is a lot more multiple, it's a lot more plural. Mm -hmm. And that's why a lot of people are happy at college than they are at high school. Is there things that societies can do to try and encourage this multiplicity of social status hierarchies? Or is that all a little bit too far out there? No, I think you're exactly right. And you're certainly right that social status, both in its subjective form and in this subjective form, is multidimensional. There are different ways you can acquire it. And that's very important. Uh, You know, more than a decade ago, I did some research with uh, Rosemary Taylor and Lucy Barnes on inequalities in health. And one of the things we found, and others have found as well, is that social status feeds into your health. So leaving aside the macro picture of the rise of populism, for people to be healthier and for the health gradient, which reflects inequalities in health, to be flatter rather than steeper, it really helps if there are multiple ways to secure social status. And you're quite right. Lots of people secure some sense of their standing in society uh, by virtue of being a good father or a good mother, you know, by virtue of, as you say, prowess on the sports field and the like. Now, I think we should think a lot more than we have, and probably more than I have, about how we cultivate, if you like, the multidimensionality of social status in society. 
I worry a little bit today about the way in which we've fetishized meritocracy. I think this feeds into it in a way that is not altogether salutary for either social cohesion or indeed individual lives. So if we see our society as one which is bound to have a number of different places in it that are going to be occupied by different people, and those are all in some sense to be respected because that's what society is like. It's uh, heterogeneous, it's varied. Uh, We celebrate that diversity to some degree, and not just ethnic diversity, but occupational lifestyle diversity and the like. Well, then in that kind of society, I think it's much easier to feel that you have decent social standing than in a society which is, for instance, heavily oriented to occupational success or higher levels of income, and where those two things are, as we know today, increasingly dependent on getting into tertiary education and ideally getting into a selective college and getting out of a selective college. As we both know, getting into selective college is a lot harder than getting out of them. But that then makes a very big difference. And this cult of meritocracy, which is you know, not entirely new, but I think intensified in the contemporary period, you know, on the one hand, it has this good effect. It, it encourages people to work hard, to strive harder, to uh, get ahead. It gives people some hope. But it also tells those who didn't make it that it was their fault. Right, right. So I think I struggle with meritocracy because I do think that, first of all, it does provide incentives that we need for people to actually excel at the job. I see what effect it has in countries like Italy, where people don't feel that working hard at something is actually going to help you get a job, and how demotivated a lot of young people are by that system. I also think that meritocracy is often the most easily justifiable way of selecting occupants of privileged offices in society, right? If you're going to have a job that makes more money, that is more visible, that comes with higher social status, the fact that you're better at the tasks of which the job consists seems like the most neutral justification that everybody in society can to some extent accept. Now, I also think that we need to reform society in such a way that the amount of benefits that comes with that high office is lower than it is right now that by being a doctor you make 80,000 as you make in Europe rather than 300,000 as you make here. Or, this is something I think about, I mean, we talk a lot about representation these days. We don't talk very much about representation in that sense. I mean, when you look through the catalog of Netflix, when you look at what's on ABC or NBC tonight, Mm -hmm. how many people are portrayed on the screen who don't have a college degree, who don't have a postgrad degree? And I think that's changed radically when you look at Cheers, it's a very racially homogeneous world in ways that are deeply troubling, but a very socially mixed world. You look at Friends, it starts to be basically everybody's been gone to college other than Joey, who's kind of a bit of an idiot and that's the joke. And then you get to a lot of sitcoms today and it's just assumed that obviously everybody's going to college or has gone to college because uh, that's the social world we all inhabit. But that's not actually true of a wider population. It's true of the writers and the network executives and so on and so forth. Well, I think you're exactly right about the way in which meritocracy is in some sense a superior principle for assigning well-being than many others, certainly than inheritance, social or economic heritage. But meritocracy only makes sense when there is something close to a genuine equality of opportunity. 
And my problem with the contemporary emphasis on it is that that emphasis comes, at least in this country, in a context in which there's nothing like hmm. a genuine equality of opportunity. Well, there's a pretense of meritocracy. Well, well there isn't actual meritocracy. Well, exactly. And in many ways, that was the point. You, you know, you remember where the term comes from or where it was popularized by Michael Young in this book of the, I think, the late 1950s, The Rise of Meritocracy. Uh, what people don't realize is that book it was, was a satire, right? Mm -hmm. You know, his, his sense was that if we really come to believe in meritocracy, well, this is going to make people miserable. Mm -hmm. And I think it does in a context where equality of opportunity is very limited. And indeed, with two colleagues, David uh, Gruski and Hazel Marcus at Stanford, I've recently written about this in a recent issue of Daedalus, the journal, where we look at meritocracy in higher education. And our big point, there's much more could be said here, is that as a result of the rise in this country of what we call opportunity markets, it has become possible, even necessary, for parents to purchase opportunity for their kids. Mm. You know, the most obvious way is that if you want to get into a good high school or even a good primary school, then, you know, you want to be in a local area that has good schools. And of course, housing is expensive there. So you're buying opportunity for your kids by virtue of buying a house in a particular location. Yeah. But those opportunity markets can be located earlier in uh, early childhood development. They're located, obviously, in the criteria that govern selection into elite universities and the like. And so that's one reason why I think we have to be careful about meritocracy in a context, partly because of changes in the economy, to be frank, equality of opportunity is no longer as real as it is an ideal. Yeah, so it seems to me, I mean, I would phrase it slightly differently, but perhaps this is just the political philosophy in me and we're getting into slightly obstruse conceptual debates, but I would render that as we have to be very careful about claims that certain institutions are working in a meritocratic way, when really what's going on is the reproduction of social advantage. But that's not an argument against true meritocracy. In fact, it's an argument in favor of true meritocracy. But let's return to the question of social status, because there's a couple of other loose ends that I'm sort of trying to think through. Right? I mean, one is but if you think of the kind of social, ethnic, and religious hierarchy that you had in the United States in 1960 or in Germany in 1960, it delivered unearned status advantages to certain groups. If you were a heterosexual male, if you were German rather than Turkish or uh, Moroccan, mm -hmm. if you were in the United States white rather than Hispanic or black, you had both objectively higher social status and probably subjectively higher social status. You mm -hmm. were seen as and saw yourself as being higher up in the hierarchy. Then you would quote unquote deserve based on all of the other kinds of things you've done in your life and so on and so forth. And I do think that we've moved more than some critics of this contemporary political moment like to believe towards greater equality and less discrimination and a whole range of issues. And as a result, some of that unearned status advantage uh, has gone away. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people who are now angry are the people who have lost some of that unearned status advantage. Now, mm -hmm. I think there's a real question, and it's partially a moral and partially a politically strategic question, and both of the dimensions of it are complicated, about how to treat people who have declined in social status like that. Mm -hmm. I think the temptation of a lot of people on the left is to say, well, you assholes never deserved that social status. Now you're angry that you've lost it. F you, 
we'll just wait for you to die out. The way you talk about it sounds a little bit more like you're thinking, well, we shouldn't give in on the principle. We should mm -hmm. obviously not continue practices of discrimination or anything like that. But we should actually try and reconcile them to the social world in some kind of way if we want to deal with a threat-like populism. So how do we negotiate these two competing instincts about how to behave towards, how to talk about people who have lost social status in that way and who, some of them, are giving voice to that in, in very politically destructive and dangerous ways. Well, I think the important thing to note is that although when we think about social status, we're thinking about a social ladder and there is naturally a hierarchy there, a social status doesn't have to be an entirely zero-sum thing. That is to say, the fact that you might have more social status doesn't necessarily mean that I have less. And in that earlier work we did on social status and health, we compared the status gradients across five or six Western societies. We used income groups. So how much status did people in the low income group feel they had relative to people in the high income group? And there were some very striking differences which would not altogether surprise you. So in the US, that status hierarchy is pretty steep. Now, there was people at the bottom of the income hierarchy feel really deprived in status terms relative to you know, higher income earners. But in Sweden, for instance, that status hierarchy is very flat. Yes, there's some difference, but the people in the bottom half tend to f feel that they have almost as much status as people in the top half. And I think that the way we think about that is twofold. It has to do with a redistribution of a number of goods. They start with economic goods because there's no question that where you feel you stand in society turns to some degree on your economic well-being, your job security, uh, your income, your sense that of opportunity, if like for your children, if not for yourself. But then we can also think about, as you suggested earlier, construing people's social standing in multidimensional terms, being more attentive to the many ways in which people can contribute to society, the many ways in which they can be good citizens. Now, does this mean that the people who tend to feel disadvantaged today are not going to feel disadvantaged? Well, well, maybe not. You know, you've seen the figures. I'm not sure how solid they are, but, you know, close to 50% of white American men are willing to say they're discriminated against in these surveys, right? And that's a very, very worrisome sign. So, you know, how do we think about presenting society as more inclusive? Certainly one step would be to think about celebrating the many different ways in which people can contribute to it. You know, that, that sounds rather Pollyannish, but as I look at contemporary political discourse in any of the societies I know, I don't see an enormous emphasis on that. And as you remarked with regard to TV programs, you know, I, I see a kind of monochromatic presentation of what it means to be of high status. We need to move away from that monochromatic view of such things. So in other words, if the emphasis that Noam and I are putting on social status identifies the problem in certain terms, the solution has to be twofold. It can't be entirely symbolic. In other words, there has to be an economic component to this. Uh, there have to be ways of making the lives of people at least a little bit more equal 
and not just in terms of income, maybe not even mainly in terms of income, but in terms of opportunity and economic security. Uh, so there's a serious material challenge there. But then there is also a symbolic challenge about what we say to the citizens of our country of diverse sorts about whether they belong or not. In this successful societies group that I uh, directed for 15 years with uh, Michel Lamont, we used to talk about that in terms of collective imaginaries. Every society has a collective imaginary, which in simple terms you can think of as a narrative, a narrative that ties the nation's past to its present and in turn to its aspirations for the future. And those national narratives also tell people whether they belong or not. And you're right, I think the American national narrative and in the Canadian, uh, many national narratives have improved a lot in the last few decades with regard to telling people of different races or ethnicities that you too belong. But I don't think we can stop there. I think we have to think more broadly and make sure that people understand that there are many different ways of belonging and, and that this emphasis on inclusiveness includes those who once thought they were the only heirs of the nation. Yeah, I do think it's one of the ways in which I'm stubbornly out of tune with a prevailing mode of this political moment, which, you know, has deep hatred for the other side on many parts of a populist right, but which increasingly on big parts of the left also consists in basically saying, these people are just our enemies. We cannot win them over for our values. They are stubbornly in the past. They are stubbornly bigoted. And the best we can do is to make sure they don't have power. Mm -hmm. And I'm every day frustrated by the presidency of Donald Trump. I'm every day scared of what's going on from India to Turkey mm -hmm. to Hungary. Mm -hmm. But I still think that that's aiming too low, that we need to think about how we can achieve some deeper social reconciliation, which will not include 100% of citizens, it can never do that, mm -hmm. but which allows 80, 90% of a population to feel like they have a place in the society uh, that they're happy with, uh, that mm -hmm. they think is fair, that they feel that they and people like them will continue to have a proud place in this country in the coming decades. And I think this idea that we can just have sort of the 52% as it would be in Britain, outvote the rest, and that that would somehow either be electorally feasible in a sustainable way or make for a decent society, I think is not ambitious enough about what kind of society I would want to live in for the rest of my life. I think you're right. I agree with you on that. And I think more to the point, uh, equally important, I think it is to some degree tractable, right? Because we can sit here and express these aspirations for a more inclusive society without actually having to accomplish it. And accomplishing it is not easy. But I think the fact that there is a big regional dimension to this uh, is an opportunity as well as a challenge. You know, we know in East Germany, for instance, in the north of Britain, in parts of the U.S., a lot of the complaint has to do with the declining quality of public services. You know, the fact that the train station closed, the fact that now I have to go 50 miles to get to the hospital rather than 10 miles, that sort of thing. And those lead to feelings of being left behind. They lead to feelings of resentment. When you feel left behind, you tend to look for outgroups to blame. And so you get a very vicious circle here. Well, I think it may be possible to cut into that vicious circle by thinking about 
among other things, the regional distribution of the resources that people see as crucial to their lives. And, you know, that won't solve the problem, but it's a tangible step that could be taken. And we need to think about those steps. So this is a natural transition to the last question I want to ask, or perhaps set of questions, which is about public policy. What aspect of this would you wish that Democratic presidential candidates, for example, pick up? Not in the interest of getting elected, but in the interest of actually making a difference. If you worry about people's subjective sense of social status, if you worry about these regional disparities, if you worry about people feeling like they and their children don't have a decent future ahead of them, is there anything that policymakers can do? What is it that policymakers can do in order to reverse these trends? Well, I think we're hearing some good ideas from the candidates, and I think there's room for even more of them. As I've just said, I think we need to think about the regional dimension of uh, public services. There are large parts of this country that don't have very good internet access. You know, that's a sine qua non of effective existence, not to mention opportunity in the contemporary world. That's something the federal government uh, could do something about. It's something the German government could and should do something about, for instance. I think that the issue of can you get your child into college and will that be a good college is a really important issue for people. And there are different ways to approach it. There's no magic bullet here. But I think that better financial aid, maybe making higher education, community college or university uh, in public institutions free for residents of deprived regions or areas. I don't see why we shouldn't do that. I mean, it's not cheap. Uh, we can't pretend that it's cheap. The most intractable issues, I think, have to do with ones that are not immediately under the control of the government. They have to do with the way in which people's working lives are changing. You know, there are a lot of people who are doing on-demand work. They don't know from day to day whether they're going to be called in tomorrow. There are a lot of people who have somewhat steadier jobs but still face the prospect of unemployment or having to find a new job in a couple of months, that sort of thing. Now, the fact that the unemployment rates declined, I think, is making a difference. And I think that we should be attentive to the differences that makes. But the conditions under which people work are ultimately under the control of the firms they work for. And I think the government, instead of saying, oh, well, that's not our business, that's mm. something we're going to leave to the private sector, I think the government has to be more proactive and think about uh, what kind of regulatory steps can be taken, what kind of incentives can be offered to firms uh, to give people somewhat more secure employment and somewhat more satisfying job conditions in many cases. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.